This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And good morning. This is Brooke Spector, and this is the Deep Dive. And we're talking elections. Well, we talked elections last week. There were two. There was one in Brazil and one in Israel. And we had useful and interesting conversations. And I learned a lot about the two political systems. And there was, in the meantime, yet another election, this time in the United States, uh, the midterm election, so-called because it comes in the middle of a presidential term, uh, voting for members of Congress, House of Representatives, Senate, many governors across the country and in, in 36 states, state legislators, mayors, uh, city council members, right on down to uh dog catcher, I think, in at least one place. And there were a series of, I like to say referendums now. I'm told we no longer say referenda, referendums on all manner of things. Mostly, uh, usually referendums are about tax policy and things like that. But some of them were interesting social policy questions relating to uh, government control or the lack of it over the right to life or uh, sexual privacy and uh, thing, and uh, the use of marijuana and so forth. And we're joined this morning by uh, Dr. Alon Ben-Mir from the United States. I can see him. You'll have to listen to him. He's Professor of International Relations and Middle Eastern Studies at the Center for Global Affairs in New York University. And that, not surprisingly, is in New York City. Uh, and he is also a senior, a senior fellow and the Middle East Project Director at the World Policy Institute. It's good to have you with us, sir. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We know the elections have happened, and we know that the results are not all in, but there's one major race that's left uh, undecided, a couple of getting there. But the one in Georgia, for, for the senator, a senator from the state of Georgia, uh, pitting Reverend uh, Raphael uh, Warnock, who is currently the incumbent senator, against uh, Herschel Walker, star football player at uh, University of Georgia, then Pittsburgh Steelers and the professionals, uh, and uh, put up as a candidate for senator. And that one is going to go to referendum. And it seems that the House of Representatives is going to be in Republican Party hands, but only barely, and the Senate is still up for grabs, it seems. Whatever happened to that red wave or that red tide, Professor? Where, where did it go? Did it just go back out to sea? Well, um, I think this is a very interesting phenomenon. I know all the pundits, uh, political, uh, on both parties, officials, have really misread the public sentiment. Uh, so it's, this is very important to keep in mind. That is. There were a number of issues that were at play here. And I think both parties, although the, the Democrats were somewhat more hopeful well, than the Republican in terms of what might be the end result. You know, Pelosi said, we still, you'll still have a surprise perhaps about the ultimate result. She said that only a couple of days ago. So what happened, I think a number of things we have to, to keep in mind. Number one is there's the Trump fatigue. You now throughout the election, Trump was going out with his rallies, continued to spread his lies, misinformation. And basically, a growing number of American people have gotten sick and tired 
uh, of Trump. This is very was was a factor in the election. Uh, the other thing is, you know, Trump insisted on nominating extremely unqualified candidates. Pennsylvania is a perfect perfect case where Oz, you know, how lost again. But this is very important to keep in mind that as many candidates, deniers of the 2020 election, have not done well. And this is important to keep in mind. Um, Let me interrupt just a second. Let me just interrupt. You said Oz, and I should clarify for our listeners, this was Dr. Mehmet Oz. Mehmet uh, Oz, yes. Well known as as a TV advice giver and uh, supplements uh, hawker. uh, And a little bit confused on whether he lived in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, it seemed. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I want to clarify. Oh, no, no, but that's a, it's important to mention who he, who he is, you know. Uh, I, I don't know, I mean, he's never been involved in politics, and all of a sudden he's now nominated for a very, one of the highest uh, offices in, in, in the government. Uh, then you have, of course, the the, um, the new surge of a new, of, uh, of a new register, you know, who mostly voted for Democrats, the young and independent. Uh, these two uh, groups have also become somewhat uh, uh, frustrated and tired about the chaos, the political chaos has been sweeping the country uh, for the last two, two years. And then the other concern, which I think was also a major factor, is the fear of many, many Americans about the rise of white supremacy. So if you put all of these factors together, one can probably explain, you know, why this so-called red wave did not take place and why the the Senate still potentially could still go remain in the hands of the Democrats. And although they like you suggested, the why the House may may become under the Republican control, but the majority would be so slim, it would be extremely difficult for the Speaker or for the Republican Party to pass any significant legislation that is going to pass uh, in the Senate. So this, this, all of it together, augurs very well for America, for democracy, which we were terrified, terrified. The democracy has been under attack for the last, since 2016, for that matter. And the, this election provided a pause, but it is not the end, in my view, to the danger that America faces. That's interesting you say that. Uh, I've read a lot of commentary. Uh, This election cycle had me up basically 24 hours a day since Monday afternoon, (laughs) paying attention to this. Uh, Like a lot of people, uh, the time zone difference was a killer for us here. Um, But you, you allude to the fact that the dangers, we're still in the danger zone in the U.S., that it is, that the, the contagion is not entirely over there's still a temperature and the, bo- the body politic is still a little febrile. Uh, and that's uh, a lot of people who did get elected are what we call uh, election deniers. And they, have, they are perhaps more prevalent in the Republican Party's congressional delegation now than they would have been just uh, a year ago. This is very true. You see, the the concern, I mean, um, most people, in fact, them, the, the Republican Party don't like to talk about this, but the reality is simple. America is becoming increasingly more and more brown and black. That is, within 15, you know, demographers suggest within 15 years or even less, 
the black and Hispanic will be a majority in America. This is terrifies the Republicans. So what the Republicans are doing are going to stop short of nothing. That is, if they do absolutely nothing, probably the Republican will never see the White House again. And that is the terrifying Republican. And so they have stopped short of nothing, engaged in all kinds of, um, you know, of policies, um, conspiracy theories, uh, lies, uh, mis spreading misinformation, uh, uh, tempering with the Electoral College, uh, gerrymandering. They are stopping short of nothing to ensure less and less brown and Hispanic, actually, uh, black and Hispanic go to vote. Uh, more and more white, you know, the, 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 the white the supremacy are, are fighting with the tooth and nail in order to establish their place in, within the Republican Party, and they have successfully did so. So we are in now for a period of time where they have not given up. They're going to continue to try to fight in order to basically subordinate democracy along the lines, say, of what's happening in Hungary under Orban. You know, it is election, it's a democracy in name, but the, 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 what he has done in Hungary is exactly what the Republican Party would like to do here in the United States. Basically, curtail freedom, as you mentioned before, of course, the issue of the, of the, the Roe versus Wade, you know, the fact that the Supreme Court Council or the, the, the institutional law, in, you know, about the women's right. That was a significant factor also because in this election. So the Republican Party will be continued to fight in order to, to be able to have some kind of hold on power. And that is where I see continuing turmoil for the next few years until we get rid of Trump. And that's going to be very important uh, a point uh, of departure. We're speaking with Dr. Alon Ben-Mir of New York University, various affiliations in that school. And we're talking naturally about this time, we're talking about the U.S. election, which is uh, done, but not quite dusted. There's still some, some unfinished business there. We're going to take a quick station break and an important message. But while we're doing that, would you, I'd like you to think about two questions, Dr. Benmir, and you can re respond to them after we come back. The first question is the well-publicized red wave, red wave never actually happened. Dig a little deeper at, into why it never really occurred. But the more important question for me is the big winner and the big loser in this election. The big winner has to be uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, sometimes we think of him as Donald Trump, but without the madness. Precisely how did that happen since he did really well with Hispanic Americans and a, a significant number of minority Americans? And the big loser is clearly Donald Trump for throwing his weight behind some seriously deficient candidates uh, who came to earth and didn't succeed. But first, this message. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back with The Deep Dive, and I am Brooke Spector. And we have been talking and continue to talk with Dr. Alon Ben-Mir of New York University on the American election. And I posed a couple of questions to him before the break. The red wave vanished, and 
dig deeper on why that is. And then the big winner and the big loser, big winner, I think must be Governor uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida. And the big loser is Donald Trump because he backed people who didn't win. And Ron DeSantis perhaps positioned himself to be the best potential Republican Party candidate in 2024 for president. Dr. Ben, ben Mir, excuse me. Yeah, what happened, you know, DeSantis actually, he, he read the political scene very well and very carefully. He catered it focused on the Floridian situation, needs, requirements, so he paid quite a bit of attention to the state itself. But he was also studying very carefully and the the phenomena of Trump and the, the, the fading, the gradual fading of a Trump stature. This has been, you know, evident for some time now. Many polls that have been taken uh, recently suggested only 35% of Republicans actually would vote for Trump. So he has lost his much of his luster. And this is important to keep in mind. So because of that, dissenters feel far more emboldened to speak out and made it very clear that he is no longer would be intimidated by Trump. And so now, as a result of this election, many Republicans begin to think in terms of 2024 and who would be the most viable candidate. And I don't think they are going, as I, if I'm, I'm prepared to make a guess today, a prediction, I don't think that Trump would be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. He, they are, they will start talking to him as of, as of today, that their chances to recapture the White House would be practically nil if he were to run again, perhaps even against Biden. So, so the center is now trying to situate himself in a way so that he would be the, the one for the party to, to nominate. And I think his chances to achieve his objective may very well be very good. The other half of the coin, uh, the fading away of Donald Trump. I mean, I, I, I have this vision of Republican elder saying, well, Donald, thank you very much. You, you set a path for us and you've, uh, you've generated lots of enthusiasm for uh, your brand of policies. But it's time for you to sit down and relax and read the newspaper and watch TV and let other younger people take take up this banner and move forward. A, a passing of the generation, if you will. Well, it's, it's not going to be a passing of a generation, ideologically speaking. That is, they would want to get rid of Trump. But in terms of their, their, their Republican Party ultimate objective, probably has not changed and probably will not change for a while. That is, as I indicated earlier, the concern that they will never, never see the White House again unless they do what they've been doing now for the last several years. So, so Trump is, is fading away. And the result of this election, even, even if the Democrats lose both houses, the result a quite sounding defeat for Trump. And they, he would be told, and it is, what would be the chances for the Republican Party to win should he run again in 2024? As I said, probably nil at this point. And then we're going to see now the maneuvering within the Republican Party as to who might emerge the, the, the nominee. 
but as I, we mentioned earlier, dissent has already established a very uh, solid position in that regard. So, so we are in now for the internal combustion, we might say, within the Republican Party, reassessing where they have gone wrong and how to proceed. But their main agenda in terms of how to recapture power, how to manipulate the political system, how to manipulate the judiciary for that matter, uh, the appointment of judges. And uh, this is one concern, for example, the Democrats have today, if the Senate passes to the hand of the Republicans, there will be dozens, if not scores, of more, you know, conservative, very conservative judges will be appointed. So there is now a window of opportunity for the next seven, six or seven weeks for the Democrats to qualify to pass into many, as many judges as they possibly can. There's a going to see it's a very strong movement in that regard. So, so now the the battle, sort of the lines of the battle have been redrawn. The, the, the Republicans need to strategize, re-strategize how to go about it. Uh, but I think the Democrats now would be able to operate from a position much stronger, stronger, specifically if and when the, if the economy recovers sooner rather than later. One of the things that occurs to me, and I, I've seen it mentioned a few times, but I haven't seen it focused on really strongly yet, uh, if Donald Trump is not the nominee, or even perhaps if he ends up becoming the nominee, despite everything that you and I have been have been talking about, um, there will be increasing pressure in the Democratic Party to, to think about the nature of their nominee for the 2024 election. Uh, Joe Biden is president. He looks he looks good. He acts with a degree of enthusiasm and excitement about his job. But the, the clock does tick and people do get older. And there may well be some pressure among Democrats who want to continue a Democratic administration in the face of a younger, more vigorous man like Ron, Ron DeSantos. Perhaps it's time for Joe Biden to let someone younger and more vigorous to take to take up the the uh, the baton, if you will, and one of the names that I've seen rising in this discussion is the California Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, now Kamala Harris, the Vice President, also comes from California, which would be an interesting kind of battle. Uh, and but there are a few other people, not the least of which one name within the current cabinet. And that's the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, uh, who is young, but seems to be one of the few people in the cabinet who can explain complicated issues that make sense to normal people rather than policy wonks. What's your reaction to that evolution? In a, a very important question, you know, what's going on within the Democratic Party. There are many voices now within the party that suggest it is time for younger, more um, aggressive, quote-unquote, uh, candidate, uh, one who actually can uh, revive and attract specifically the young Democrats who've been sort of aloof and would, do not take much interest in politics, albeit there was some surge among young Democrats in this particular, in this last, uh, in this election. So they are back talking about the potential of having a new, younger, uh, you know, uh, energetic uh, nominee. 
there's no question, you know, um, President Biden, <clears throat> so probably the most experienced president we've had in 50, 60 years, you know. I mean, he's been a senator, he's been vice president, now he's a president. He knows the ins and the outs of international politics and domestic politics. Probably nobody, no one else knows it as best as he, as he does. But like you said, he is, will be, he would be over 80 years old if he were to run again. As they already seem tired. I mean, you've seen him last couple of days, making, delivered a couple of speeches. Uh, he walks slowly, he talks slowly, and, um, and they, the, the Democrat now wants somebody that's going to exude that kind of energy and be able to create the enthusiasm necessary. Kamala Harris is a, you know, obviously would be a contender. But I, I wrote a while, a while ago, I said, her column, where is Kamala Harris? What is she doing? So she's been campaigning, of course, outside New York. We don't see her much in New York, major network in New York necessarily. But uh, she is not the one who the party now is looking at for potential candidate. So Innocent is one who's younger, who's young, uh, bright, um, has shown uh, tremendous capacity to, to govern. Uh, so he would be a very significant contender. I uh, said, so Buzhenjek is a different story. He is obviously much, much younger, albeit he's extremely articulate, like you suggested, uh, very bright, and he can explain the most complicated issue in simple terms, exactly what you said. On the other hand, I think the question, you know, we have to raise it whether we like it or not, is America ready for a, a gay uh, candidate to be the president of the United States? I hate to say that there's a still uh, significant uh, level, level of racism in this country. Uh, we have we have to admit that, and I'm not sure the American public ready. They'll say there'll be some time when a gay person will be able to run for president and even make it, but I'm not sure the American public is ready at this juncture. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, historically, at least, uh, there was a time when it was inconceivable that a black person would run, let alone become president. Uh, it was just as inconceivable that a female person would run and almost become president. And if the historians are accurate, there's been one man, James Buchanan, back in 1856 to 1860, remained devoutly single through his entire life. And there are always rumors that it was a different kind of society and you didn't talk about that, but uh, he may well have been gay, it's possible. But the, you're quite right to say that there are hurdles for somebody of uh, Pete Buttigieg's uh, capacities as well as person personal aspects that would make it difficult um, I, 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 it, what it seems to me is I have to start writing a, 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 an article about uh, Gavin Newsom to explain to people who he is, uh, because we, we're going to hear more about him, just like we're already hearing rather more about uh, Ron DeSantos. Uh, governors make good presidents, I think, in many ways, because they already they already do things. They are already ex exactly. executives of large organizations. Senators talk, but governors govern. This is very true, very true. And, and you know, again, um, you mentioned two examples, you know, no one thought a black could, could be able to become president. Nobody thought that the women would almost make it to the presidency. 
And like, but I said it earlier, the, I'm not suggesting this will never happen. I just think the time is not there yet as far as electing a, a gay president for the United States. Uh, also, this is also due to the political combustion that's taken place, the attack of the Republican of, you know, uh, game, you know, same sex marriage and all of that. So it is in the news, unlike, say, going back a hundred years ago, whether, you know, uh, the, the president you mentioned was a single, um, you know, that was not in the news, you know, why he was single, why didn't he get married? It didn't really, nobody talked about gay, gay people at the time and the manner that we talk about it nowadays, which is day in and day out. So, so I would vote for, for Buttigieg if he were to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, that's for sure. <laughs> but I'm not sure how many more Americans would be prepared to do the same thing. <laughs> I would, I would bet he'll be—he's the only person who would ever become president in the United States who speaks Norwegian and Maltese, <laughs> as, yeah. as well as well as English, um, right. and a little bit of Farsi as well, apparently. Yes, yes. And we're going to take another station break. Uh, we have we have these important messages we have to be mindful of. We're speaking with Professor Alon Ben-Mir of New York University on America's election, which is just over and still continuing. They're still counting the votes in a couple of places, and there's going to be at least one runoff between the two candidates for senator in Georgia. That takes place in uh, four weeks from now, uh, people yes. in Georgia may get almost as tired of elections as the people in Israel are. Um, but when we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the domestic political situation and the policies that will uh, be pursued by President Biden in the face of a more difficult uh, circumstance in the Congress. Not entirely opposed to him, but more difficult. This is The Deep Dive. It's Brooke Spector. And we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive. This is Brooke Spector. And we're speaking with Professor Alon Ben-Mir of New York University. And we're talking, not surprisingly, about elections, America's election, still continuing in some small ways, uh, and the results are still to some degree up in the air, but they're not precisely the way the Republicans had anticipated they would come out. The, the dreaded blue, green, blue, well, red, red, that's right, that was their color, red. Red wave didn't happen, or it was a little ripple. But regardless, the composition of the Congress now will be somewhat different. And one analysis that I saw said because of the way candidates were picked in primaries for many congressional seats, the end result is a more radical Republican delegation to Congress as a whole than even the, was the case now. And that's obviously going to have some kind of an impact on the way policies are pursued or the difficulties that the Biden administration will get its policies, its, uh, its intentions, its programs launched and supported and funded. And your, your thoughts on the matter, sir? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we, we know that President Biden has always been, from his own experience in the Senate, he likes to reach out to the uh, uh, the opposition. And he already said that. That is, he is now open and willing to 
reach out to the, the, the Republicans to work on various and very important domestic agendas. I'm not sure what will be the level of cooperation, albeit they have cooperated on a number of issues before, for example, on the infrastructure bill, on the the, the, the pandemic bill where he provided you know, two point trillion dollars, you know, to for the to for social uh, you know aid and assistance. So uh, the gun control uh, and the, the latest legislation related to you know reducing the 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 cost of drugs and specifically climate change. So so he's been able to work with the Republican even under the most worst the worst circumstances over the last couple of years. His domestic agenda now is he will continue to push for his domestic agenda. And and I think we want to mention three or four specifically very important for him. His number one is not necessarily in that order of importance, but climate change is extremely important for President Biden. And so that is going to be pursued vigorously, and specifically because the funds are already available near to the tune of $300 billion. Now, the strength in the social, net, the social network, this is very important for him. That is, he wants to be able to provide for the poor, for the needy more, and definitely he wants to raise more taxes rather than cut taxes. That is going to be an uphill battle for him if the Senate it passes both to the hands of the Republican. That's going to be a very difficult way. The, um, he also wants to make sure that the, the cost of the drugs is been reduced substantially so that people can afford the drugs they need uh, to, to feel better, to get better. This domestic agenda he's, will not change. He's going to, to pursue that. And I think he stands a good chance to be able to pursue this agenda uh, fairly successfully in the next uh, couple of years that he's got left. That's where I see uh, Biden is going. And and um, I, I think the, the Republican Party, they obviously will resist some of these things specifically. For example, they want to cancel Social Security and Medicare. But that's not going to happen under Biden's watch. So there'll be that kind of battle between the two sides. Uh, but again, Given, even if they win both houses, given this very, very slim majority, extremely slim both, so they'll have very little choice but to cooperate on certain levels in order to get the country more. You know, one of the things people in countries outside the, people outside the United States tend not to realize is that unlike a parliamentary democracy where every member of a parliament of a of party A or B, uh, they have to effectively follow their parliamentary policies and leaders uh, as a as a condition of being members of parliament. Effectively, to rebel against the party leadership is essentially to consign them themselves to being ousted and being removed from office. In many cases, um, in the U.S., of course, every member of Congress, every senator, every House member of the House of Representatives. Although they believe themselves to be a member of a party, Democrat or Republican, in a few cases, independent, all of them think of themselves as uh, statesmen and potential world leaders and uh, theoretically, in the back of their minds, president. And none of them feel absolutely bound to the idea they must vote the way the party leadership or the president, depending on the administration, says they must. There are always crossovers or defectors one way or the other. 
Biden may well be able to exploit or capitalize on that to some degree because of the experience that you referred to, you think? Well, you know, the what you said is, uh, is true. However, there is some significant distinction in this case between Israel, between the Democrats and the Republicans. What we have witnessed specifically over the last two years, hardly a single Republican deviated from the position that the party has taken. I mean, it was absolutely uh, amazing to see that not a single one would cross the line on many issues, albeit some senators did on a different kind of issues. So, for example, with the, with the impeachment, the second impeachment President Trump, we saw 10, 10 you know, across the line, but that is quite rare. So the, the Republican Party in this regard is extremely, extremely um, disciplined. The members are disciplined and they pretty much go along the party line. With the Democrats, it's a different story. The Democrats, by ideologically, by tendency, naturally, they feel more democratic, quote unquote, to pretty much say it and do what they, what they feel they can say, say and do. Um, for example, take the Senator Manchin of, um, um, who opposed the Build Back Better bill that President Biden presented initially to the tune of $3.2 trillion. He resisted that, he's within the party also. Uh, Senator Sinema, she too opposed to that. And as a matter of as a because of that, President Biden was unable to pass the kind of legislation he wanted to, do, to, to pass. I don't think he would have, he would have seen this within the Republican Party. They would have told the, 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 the ideological line. So there are differences. And then, but the, the other point I need to make is what we've been looking at all this and the polarization within the American society now between the Democrats and the Republicans. That polarization will remain rather um, heated for, the, for some time. Now, the, what the result of this election might do is perhaps temper that a little bit. But as, like I said earlier, the Republicans are determined to pursue their own agenda, to recapture the presidency. And so they'll stop again short very little in order to achieve that kind of objective. So you're gonna have these two agendas competing with one another for the next two to two years. Biden will achieve, will realize some of them. Um, the, the Republican may collaborate, cooperate with him at some of these issues, but the competition between the two, the rivalry between the two is going to continue um, for, for at least for the next couple of years until we see who's going to be the next president of the United States. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the final part of our conversation with Professor Alan Ben-Mir from New York University. And I want to talk with you just a little bit about the effect on foreign policy from the results of this election. And then we'll wrap it up and we'll say thank you very much. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're speaking with Dr. Alon Ben-Mir from, from New York University. We're talking all things America's election. This is The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector. And we're going to dive in the last minutes of our conversation on the effects of this election uh, on foreign policy 
And the three obvious ones to think about um, along with all the others like climate change uh, would be uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, China policy, and let's throw in the Middle East as well. You have a couple of minutes to, to deliver on all of those. <laughs> there's a, obviously many, many issues, but on foreign policy, we have one thing is clear. The president basically determined foreign policy, regardless how much the Republican could oppose this, this policy or that policy. But so happened, as a matter of fact, there is a quite a bit of consensus when it comes to foreign policy between the Democrats and the Republicans. Take the Ukraine, the support for the Ukraine is quite unanimous. I mean, some Republican object to this, uh, how much money to give, um, et cetera, but there is consensus on that. There's a significant consensus on the policy toward Iran. Uh, the, the Republican will support uh, the, the renewing the, the Iran deal if they, if they can with this. But at this point, it seemed to me that that's going to probably won't happen. But there is a consensus between the two sides. There's a significant consensus, obviously, in connection with Israel. Both parties have traditionally been supportive of Israel, regardless of any disagreement they may have with Israel itself. Both parties support the state of Israel. So, and albeit they continue to preach, obviously, the need for two-state solution, which is, which in my view, is is, is remain critically important that we continue to support the two-state solution to bring somewhat, sometime, an end to this particular conflict, in which I was directly and indirectly involved for more than three decades. So that's something need to be, uh, they both agree on. As far as China, there's still support for Biden in his approach to the Chinese right, to tension that we have now with China. Um, same thing with, 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 with Russia. So there is, a, there is a, they see much more eye to eye on foreign policy and the very important issues. Uh, they may differ in terms of what country to aid, what, what kind of, for example, take, take Saudi Arabia, which is very important. The conflict now between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia, it's a very, it's very important. Uh, and, and, um, were there any some mishap on the part of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Saudi Arabia? I would say yes, you know. Biden, when he was running for president, he condemned the Saudis, called it pariah state, irredeemable regime, and all of that. And so the Saudis are very, very angry, very upset with what Biden has been doing. They would prefer to see a Republican president in, in, in power. Uh, but on the whole, I think President Biden would continue his foreign policy the way he has. He will have very little objection coming from the Republican Party in this regard. Um, I'll take a little bit of an issue with you on uh, Ukraine. There have been some, uh, what I think of as relatively disturbing comments uh, by some Republican congressmen and senators uh, about no longer giving Ukraine a blank check. And then there are some neo-isolationists, people like like Rand Paul, senator from, uh, from Kentucky, uh, who have been opposed to aiding Ukraine in the first place, in right. large part. Uh, and I, I get the feeling that if the Republicans actually do have control over the House of Representatives, there will be hearings and there will be testimony and there will be lots of speeches about as much as we'd like to keep Ukraine independent, we can't 
forever continue to ship all the national patrimony Ukraine's way and so forth and so forth. I think there's something of a fissure in, in there. There is, but uh, there's a small minority of some senators and others in the House and the Senate Republicans who are actually saying enough is enough. How much longer can we continue this aid? Now it's almost reaching $20 billion. And they want to see perhaps a, a more effort is being to negotiate, that is to put some pressure on Zelensky to agree to negotiation. But you see, as long as he's making some gains in this in the war, he is not inclined at this point to enter into any serious kind of negotiation, nor does President Putin, for that matter, is not that eager because he wants to show that he can have gained something that he can sustain and keep those gains. So the, politically and psychologically and in the field, in the, in, in, the, in the war itself, neither side is yet ready to sit down and negotiate. Both want to further strengthen their position. But Putin has been losing, so it's much harder for him now to to to, to say, even sit down and negotiate. Much, much harder. He wants something in return. He needs a face-saving way out. So this is what is happening. Now, the Republicans, even if they assume, uh, the, and most likely the House, and, and certainly the House, there will be some rumbles, there will be some discussion, but the Republican Party will not uh, disown the Ukraine. There will be more pressure on Zelensky to agree to negotiate, more pressure coming also from India and China on Russia and Turkey. That is, it's time to sit down and negotiate. So the dynamics now is at play. Uh, and we, I think within the next few months, we're going to see some kind of change because the fatigue is eventually setting in, not by the United States in terms of support of the EU, in terms of financial support and military support of the Ukraine, but also in Russia itself. Russians are asking, where are we going with this war? Uh, how many more they have to sacrifice for the war that has they seem seem to have no no they expected it to to end in two or three or four weeks the so-called special operation and there is no any size so Putin under tremendous domestic pressure as well to to find a solution to to end this conflict uh, so these all dynamics are to play then for the next several months uh, but I think. Um, but, Probably by March, February, if I to make any prediction, they eventually they will have to sit down and negotiate because Putin concluded this is not a war that he, he cannot subdue all of Ukraine. I think he conceded to this fact. But he wants to maintain some territory, territory in the east and the south, and that is to, for him a saving face way out. And... and uh, Again, with the pressures coming on both sides from the international community, I think we're going to be edging closer and closer to one negotiation, albeit it may take several more months. If I were in the Russian government, I would be reading very carefully the history of the end stage of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and how it played out domestically and how the war was, was ended and how it was lost rather than uh, the first moments. Uh, I, I think that realization may be slipping into the consciousness of Russian leaders and people. We've been speaking with Professor Alon Benmir of New York University, uh, specialist on world politics and uh, 
but we have been focusing on the U.S. election, just like last week when we talked about the Israeli and the Brazilian election. A lot of elections in play. Dr. Ben-Mir, thanks you very much for your time. We appreciate it. And we will talk to you again. It will be my pleasure anytime. Thank you for having me. And this is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive, and we'll be back again next week.